All right. I think we can we can start the evening. Um, so let me first say that this is an event of the Center of Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences, and we're very pleased to have in our midst Dr. Norman Deutsch. Um, so he's a Canadian-born psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. Um, there's so many honors and achievements. Um, I don't want to get started, but just flash up a couple of things here. Um, you all know, I don't need to tell you, about The Brain That Changes Itself, the book of 2007, which translated in 18 languages, was number one bestseller in Canada and Australia, was in the top 10 science books. There was a documentary by the Canadian Broadcasting Company, was picked up left and right also by um, other um, broadcasting uh, companies. And then, of course, what we're here for today is um, the new one, The Brain's Way of Healing, which also is selling like hotcakes outside there. Um, and um, that's a New York Times bestseller, so get your copy, and I think there will be a signing afterwards as well. It's a wonderful opportunity here. And maybe a couple of factoids that are less well-known. Um, I just had the pleasure of reading uh, Dr. Deutsch's Conversations with Saul Bellow, entitled Love, Friendship, and the Art of Dying. Take a look at it at the web. It's, it's really very nice. Um, I also learned that uh, Dr. Deutsch was a poet, maybe still is a poet. Um, and then I just came from a careers event. And I'm a philosopher myself. I'm the head of the Department of, the philosophy, um, of philosophy here. And so I'm trying to tell those students that philosophy is a good thing to do because there are real jobs afterwards. And lo and behold, what do I learn? Dr. Deutsch was a philosophy student. And, and I think I'm just going to leave it at that. You're all here to hear Dr. Deutsch, so I, I'm sure this will be a wonderful evening. I'm handing it over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. For about a hundred years, at least, the words brain and healing were not used in the same sentence by physicians and scientists. There were practical reasons for this, the notoriously poor prognosis for brain problems. They remain personal catastrophes. And theoretically, people tried to explain this. The brain had become so sophisticated, so specialized during the course of evolution in developing attributes which allowed it to participate in the production of mind and thought that it seemed that a price had to be paid. Unlike the skin, the bones, liver, the blood, no replacement parts seemed to be available for the brain. It just seemed not able to heal the way others did. And what I argue in this book is that it turns out that the brain is not too sophisticated for its own good after all. The very attributes that allow it to participate in producing mental experience, when understood, its ability to form, unform, and reform circuitry very quickly in real time, makes possible a unique kind of healing. The brain doesn't heal the way other organs do, I argue. There's a special way it heals. That's the brain's way of healing. And in this book, 
I describe ways to midwife that, to, to facilitate that. And the belief that the brain couldn't heal has been so deep-seated that some of the things I am about to describe to you, I am aware, sound too good to be true. They sound like hocus-pocus to some people who read about it. And they involve energy very frequently. Um, I'm going to try to unpack why these things which are real, I've seen them. It took me eight years to write this book, very much in part because I wanted to make sure what I was describing, the effects I was describing, lasted. So often I would immerse myself in some particular clinic or in some science lab and follow a dozen or two dozen patients. In the end, as, as a, a narrative device, I often would just describe several patients because I was hoping to make certain points, and I believe that's how people learn most effectively. But I followed these things through, and I traveled to five continents over the course of, uh, since I'd written the last book, to investigate. So here's some of the things that I saw that seem like they're out of science fiction as opposed to out of science. I saw examples of sound played into the ear lead to radical improvements in children with autism, children who were supposed to be institutionalized, who ended up leading full lives. The use of vibration on the back of the head, in this case to cure, I don't often use that word, but in this case to cure attention deficit disorder so that these children didn't require medication or any kind of follow-up interventions. I saw the gentle use of electrical stimulation on the tongue, just enough to turn on the touch receptors on the tongue. There are many such receptors, um, which could lead to significant diminishment of the symptoms of multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and stroke, as well as head injury. The use of light of certain frequencies that influence bi biological cells shone onto the back of the neck to successfully treat brain injury or into the nose to help sleep, even administered intravenously to save a life, to cure a man with sepsis. So think about that. Instead of putting drugs into the IV, light is shone intravenously to help a person out. Hands on a person's cranium, a very low-tech intervention, seemingly, to improve epilepsy in a girl who'd had a pacemaker implanted um, to control her epilepsy. The use of visualization to improve chronic pain of years' duration that had been unresponsive to all known conventional and alternative treatments. And the slow, soft movement of the human hand over the body to cure a girl burnt who was born missing one-third of her cerebellum, which coordinates movement and thought, of cognitive problems and near paralysis, a girl whose parents were told that she would, they would have to prepare to have her institutionalized, and who is now, by the way, um, grown up, uh, has two degrees, runs her own business, and... Uh, has read far more Tolstoy than I have. <laughs> I will show how these techniques 
have something in common, that they stimulate and reawaken the dormant brain circuits. I, I, will sh I show that in the book, and I'll give you just a, a couple of examples here this evening. I'm very aware that this sounds too good to be true. And there are several reasons, reasons that are narrative and philosophical uh, that we are doubtful about this. And the first one has to do with what I call borrowing the phrase from a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Abraham Fuchs, who's the former Dean of Medicine at McGill University and a very able oncologist. What he has called the military metaphor in medicine. There is a profoundly um, a profound military metaphor that runs throughout modern medicine. When we want to do something good, we say we're going to combat heart disease. We'll get involved in the battle against AIDS. Uh, we're going to conquer epilepsy. This is how we speak, and it goes back to the, the founding of modern medicine. Now, modern medicine began with the founding of modern science. And modern science is very different in many respects from ancient science, particularly as it was first articulated by the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks saw that, or, or viewed human beings as fundamentally rational, and inquiry, in many respects, was the fulfillment of human life. It was an end in of itself, and therefore science, understanding the laws of the universe, or the, the, actually they didn't term, use that term laws, but understanding the order of the universe, how it worked, was an end in itself. With the rise of modernity, you see a change, and science becomes very instrumental. Some people think that this might have been influenced by Machiavelli himself, who spoke so much about conquest and worked actually with with Leonardo da Vinci at one point to try to divert the Arno River. Um, politics was seen as an attempt to conquer nature, and science was soon seen as an attempt to conquer nature for the purpose, as Francis Bacon said, of the relief of man's estate. And Thomas Sydenham, the English Hippocrates, spoke very differently about the task of medicine than the first the real Hippocrates. Hippocrates discussed medicine as a way of working with nature. One allied oneself with nature. Sydenham spoke of a murderous array of diseases that rise up against us and how he as a physician had to concoct potions and ways of burning it out, poisoning, poisoning the diseases, the metaphor of conquest was already very much in play uh, in, in Sydenham. The military metaphor is with us in treatment, and it predisposes us to believe, as in, as in all wars, that the higher tech your weaponry, the better. And it privileges the idea of invasiveness for severe illness, and that's my key point. It's hard for us to believe that very gentle interventions could possibly be effective against diseases we so fear. So the first drugs were called magic bullets. 
And when physicians today speak of our bag of tricks, we call it our therapeutic armamentarium. Most profoundly, though, the military metaphor, I believe, affects the doctor-patient relationship. Because when a patient goes to see the doctor, the thing that will decide his or her fate is the, concentrate, is the confrontation between the two great antagonists, the doctor and the disease, or in our time, the doctor and uh, medical research that you go on run, you know, marathons for to raise money for for your disease, and the disease. And the patient's body is merely the battleground upon which this decisive confrontation that will determine his or her fate is played out. It at times even influences how we as physicians talk to our patients because we frequently and more and more frequently interrupt our patients because for the high-tech physician, the decisive intervention will be the lab test, not the patient's narrative. And so the average physician now in the United States who's training to be a family doctor spends eight minutes with his or her patients, and that's in training. Um, we have to get on with it. Now, I'm not saying, if I challenge a metaphor, that there's nothing to a metaphor. The problem is when we forget that it's a metaphor. There, there's a place for the military metaphor in medicine. If you pop, or if I pop, why should I put it on you? If I pop a blood vessel in my brain, I want a neurosurgeon with nerves of steel and decisiveness and resilience and a lack of squeamishness to, to come to my rescue. And yes, I will be passive and unconscious during that operation. There's a place for it. And much great, many of the greatest advances in surgery have come from the battlefield. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this but you have to act quickly, and that's important. That's the first metaphor that gets in the way. The second metaphor is what I call the machine metaphor for the brain. Shortly after Galileo showed so impressively that the universe, that Mars and Venus and Jupiter are not gods like human beings moving around in the sky but merely matter and motion moved around by the mechanical laws of motion the idea of mechanism took hold in modern science the idea of machines with moving parts from which the word mechanism comes <coughs> machina and the first great accomplishment of this new mechanistic view in biology was William Harvey's description of the heart as a pump and vessels filled with valves. That was very persuasive. And shortly thereafter, Descartes divided us into two different substances, one that had to do with mind and one that had to do with our physical brains. And the brain was depicted as a kind of hydraulic machine. The nerves were seen as empty, filled with animal spirits, which goes all the way back to Galen. And if a boy put his foot in front of a fire, the energy of that fire stimulated the flow of animal spirits, a current up to the brain. It was then mechanically reflected back through the, other, through the nerves, and he would withdraw his foot. And it's from that, the French verb reflecter that we get reflex. 
And by uh, the 19th century, many, pe- many neuroscientists were saying that all of us, all of our mental functions, all of our brain functions are fundamentally complex elaborations of lower level reflexes. And we developed a very machine-like view of ourselves and determinism um, held sway in this mechanical system and free will was perpetually threatened by these thoughts. With the discovery of electrical machines, we became an electrical machine with circuits, and that metaphor is still with us. We all, neuroscientists are always talking about circuits. And the problem was, from the very beginning, that machines do many glorious things, but they don't renew themselves. They don't develop replacement parts, not the machines we have right now. Maybe, maybe that we will soon be described as a 4D printer, um, but Basically, our view of machines was that, and this began with Descartes and his heirs, that the way the brain worked is that it was a machine with parts, and each part performed a single mental function in a single location in the brain. And if that location was damaged, there was nothing that could be done uh, to help that person out, because the circuitry there was hardwired, seen to be formed and finalized Uh, by the end of childhood. The master analogy, the one that's with us today, is that the brain is a biological computer. And of course, there is something to the comparison. But we very quickly, we start off and say it is like a computer. And then we write books called The Machinery of the Brain. And then we forget that we're using a metaphor. And what we find as we go down this slippery slope is that the metaphor soon begins to conceal every bit as much as it reveals, if not more. So the first book dealt with this notion of the hardwired brain, and I showed some dramatic examples of people, quote, rewiring their brains um, to try to show the problem with the, the idea of the fixed brain. In this new book, I describe the work of a second generation of, I call them neuroplasticians, Um, to show what they have in common, who haven't been burdened with the need to prove that the brain is plastic, as their mentors were. But I try to deepen the understanding of how neuroplasticity can be used for healing. And this just came about by observation. Uh, After the first book, um, many stories came to me, many clinicians and scientists came to me with stories that they thought were about neuroplastic healing. And I started to notice that there were certain things that they had in common. At one point, there was an embarrassment of riches. And in this book, there are five new interventions that can help traumatic brain injury. And I, be, I, I began thinking, if I referred someone with traumatic brain injury, to, whom do I, to which of these people do I refer them? And as I immersed myself in this world, I started to see what I thought were the outlines of some stages of neuroplastic healing. Um, And the book, therefore, depicts that. But the other motif was that so many of these interventions involved, in one way or another, the use of energy to speak to the brain. Patterns of energy to modify the neuroplastic brain. The people I described were all Western neuroscientists, and every one of the interventions here, insofar as it uses 
energy, uses it in, in, in Western terms. There are definitions and equations for the use of energy here. But I couldn't fail but notice that in Western neuroscience, one of the reasons for eye-rolling, and in Western medicine, one of the reasons there's so much eye-rolling as soon as you use the word energy, is because we don't really pay that much attention to energy in general in clinical practice. Um, And this is really interesting because the commonest symptom in clinical practice is an energy symptom. It's fatigue. But the genius of Western medicine is analysis. It's breaking things down into parts. It's sorting out what the person's diagnosis is and where it comes from. It's not a holistic undertaking. And because fatigue, for instance, is such a common symptom, it's not particularly helpful in differential diagnosis because there's so many different causes of this. On the other hand, in Eastern medicine, energy has always been central, but it's been hard to define. Eastern medicine, to some extent, turned away from analysis early in its history and started to focus on mind, body, and energy. As far as I know, and there may be someone here who knows better than I do, but there's very little emphasis in Eastern medicine on the use of brain. The kinds of mapping we've been able to do in the 19th and 20th century in Western medicine has has just been absolutely brilliant. We can take Humpty Dumpty apart. But the genius of Eastern medicine is the understanding that he always has to be put back together again. Now, there is a final family of problems that lead us to doubt the possibility of what I'm describing here in terms of using energy-based interventions to talk to the brain non-invasively. And I sum it up with this sentence, and it's, I guess there are some very primitive rhymes in this sentence. But our view of the brain has been too material, too chemical, too digital, too imperial, too cortical, and altogether too cephalic and disembodied for us to give credence to what I'm about to describe. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Ever since Descartes, we've focused very much on the material aspect of the brain, of course, But in a a peculiar way, in the last 50 years, there's been so much emphasis on the chemical messengers in the brain, serotonin, dopamine, and so on. These are all real. They're all very, very important. I don't dispute that. But we've known for over 100 years that the brain, of course, is involved in electrical signaling. And that's about patterns of energy. I'm going to use a simile. The chemical messengers in the brain are very important and they function between brain cells. They're very local. Dopamine, which you hear a lot about, is very important in the brain, but it's especially important in certain parts of the brain and not others, and in one hemisphere and not another. So if we were to say that the chemical signalers in the brain are language, we'd have to say they're, in some respects, like dialect, 
But the lingua franca of the brain, the use of signaling that's the same throughout the brain, is electrical patterns of energy. These can pass through long areas of the brain. Now, I said that the brain, our view of the brain is in some respects too digital. Here's what I mean by that. It goes to the core of what I understand is happening in many kinds of brain disease, not all, but many, and it's this. Students in biology are taught that neurons are either on or off. That's digital. They get input from other neurons at a certain point, it, cre it reaches a critical threshold and they fire a spike. But the functioning of neurons is not altogether digital. The, the de branches of the dendrites seem in some respects to be more analogical, but most importantly this. The only time that neurons are truly off is when they are dead. What, what we've thought happens in brain damage is something like the following. If a person has lost 90% of the, the use of their right limb, We've presumed that 90% of the neurons that process movement in that limb or the tracks from those neurons are dead. What I actually believe happens, and this is based on having trained in neurofeedback and been exposed to the literature of quantitative EEGs, which looks at the firing of neurons in many different illnesses, is actually the following. It's much more on a continuum. Some neurons are dead. The neurons that are accustomed to getting input from those dead neurons are suddenly deprived of that input, and so they're not functioning as well as they might. Some neurons we might call sick in quotations, and they tend to be firing at different rates, usually slower than they would when they are on. Some neurons are accustomed to receiving signals from the sick neurons, and now they are getting things that are out of sync. They're too slow, sometimes too fast. So these healthy neurons getting, quote, junk data in can only put junk data out. And so what we see is although only a few of the neurons are sometimes dead, a whole families, different families of neurons can't function as well as they might. And a lot of this has to do with the disorder of firing. In a way, we've looked at brain problems as equivalent only to heart attacks and forgotten that there can be arrhythmias as well. And so these energy-based interventions can actually help resynchronize the brain, resynchronize the healthy cells that are getting uh, noisy input. Um, and also, since it's a use it or lose it brain, any cells that have, were getting input and are suddenly not, we can get them firing again. I said the view of the brain is in some respects too imperial. The great genius of 19th century and 20th century neurology and neuroscience was to map the brain so that if a person had a stroke in his right foot, we began to understand that the problem originated not in the foot as he felt it to be, but in the part of the brain that processed movement for the foot or sensation and movement for the foot. That was a great breakthrough. And the map, mapping continued, and we developed new scans, and we've done more and more napping, mapping. And we've learned so much about how the brain is involved in controlling the body. 
that we've started to talk about the brain this way. The beginning of a documentary that um, I recently saw has a very wonderful neurosurgeon, a heroic man, holding a brain. And I, I say this simply because this is a common way to speak, saying this is your brain. In this, in your neurons, are all your thoughts, your feelings, your memories, your abilities, your hopes, everything that you are is here in these neurons. This way of thinking has led to titles like You Are Your Brain. We, a lot of us talk like this. And it's led to a view of the body which has tended to see it as there, and it's a logical view, uh, as subject to the, the master of the brain which gives the orders. The body is conceived of increasingly in some areas of neuroscience as infrastructure for the brain. Neuroscientists sometimes write about experiments of what if we were to try to take a brain out of a body and put it in a vat. You know, what would, would that vat require to keep that brain sustained? And along these lines, uh, the futurist Ray Kurzweil has, is undertaking a number of um, ways of improving his health so that he can last long enough, um, several more decades, I believe, till he can unload all of his thoughts onto a computer and thereby achieve immortality. And it's a nice thought experiment and he may achieve something. But whatever that immortal thing is, I don't think it will be a human being. Um, because it's really only in anatomy textbooks that brains are separate from bodies. Functionally, brains are seamlessly connected to bodies. Bodies it's, it's, connected to, it's connected to the ner to the peripheral nervous system, to bodies, and seamlessly through the senses, connected to the world around us and the energy in the world around us. We are not cut off from that. But more importantly, this idea that you are your brain and brains and bo bodies are mere infrastructure for brains is backwards. In the course of evolution, bodies preceded brains by a by millions of years. Nervous systems and brains arose fairly late in the game. If anything, they were there to serve bodies. Now, I think what happens in evolution is something um, new comes along and the old thing adapts to it and they work together. There are 100 million neurons in your gut. Um, the vagus nerve which goes into the gut, has many, many more, um, conveys much information, as much more information from the body to the brain than it does from the brain to the body. It's clear that there is a two-way interaction between the two. Now, the epiphanies upon which this book are based tie in, first of all, to a very brief conversation I had with Paul Bakirida, who I'm going to talk about and show a couple of films 
uh, about j- just snippets in a second. But he was interested in sensory plasticity, and he developed dev- ways of allowing blind people to see by hooking them up to cameras, which then sent input to a computer and then to their tongue, and they learned to read uh, images off their tongues and things like that. And his point was this, and I'm, I'm putting it in my words, and everybody knows this. We see beautiful images, we smell fragrant odors, we hear deeply moving sounds of music or or speeches, but there are no images in our brain, there are no fragrant odors in our brain, there's no music in our brain, there are patterns of energy. All of these experiences are in our mind and neuroscientists have as much trouble as anybody else in defining mind. We could go into that later. The second point is that all of our senses are what are called, in engineering, transducers. They convert energy of one form into energy of another form. Our ears convert the patterns of energy in speech and music or the chaos of noise into electrical patterns of energy and information. Our eyes do that with light. There are some theories of how smell works that talk about vibrational resonance uh, as the way we recognize different odors. And again, these patterns of energy are the lingua franca of the brain. So we have a way of using our senses to speak to the brain, and because the brain is plastic, we can influence its structure using non-invasive, gentle, natural forms of energy, even for severe conditions. One patient after another in the brain's way of healing was told that they would never get better. But there are stories and studies of people with stroke, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, brain injury, autism, learning disorder, sensory processing disorder, chronic pain of many kinds, to mention a few. Stories of people making radical improvements with these kinds of techniques. In some cases, the improvements are sufficient to take a person from being dependent to independent. In some cases, um, there's a radical improvement in their everyday life, such that people tend to say things like, I feel I got my life back. There are a couple of cases where I would use the word cure, as in the cases of ADD and some learning disorders and some of the chronic pain patients I describe. I don't use that word liberally. Radical improvement seems to me to be more than enough. Now, I mentioned the work of Paul Bachirita, and I want to show you just some films of some of his work. I showed a lot of these films. I was once at the LSE Uh, four or five years ago and I showed quite a bit of his work on film and because his lab has been so important in my own thinking I want to just, for those of you who didn't see these films, which I'm assuming is most of you I just want to show some snippets so you can see um, what's at stake here and 
After I show you these snippets, I will update you on what that lab has done. Now, in 1969, in Nature, um, a funny, uh, a very, very strange picture appeared in which, so, by the way, is the AV person here? I'll just talk you through it while... So in 1969, yeah, yeah, uh, a dentist chair appeared in Nature, looking at like something out of that Back to the Future movie, and it had a whole bunch of vibrators on the back, and there was a huge cable that went to an IBM-sized computer from the 1960s, very large, and there was a camera, and people who had been blind since birth would sit in this chair. They'd move the camera around. They'd never seen anything. That's an interesting philosophical problem. As you know, how does a person go from seeing nothing to seeing something? And the camera would turn what it, it was, quote, seeing into pixels with the help of the computer. And then the vibrators on the back was, were, were, was in a, basically an array of pixels. And for light, they would vibrate one way. And for darkness, they would stay fairly stationary, as I recall. And after a certain amount of training, these people began to make out what they called images. And the kinds of differentiations they could make included things like, that's Mary who's just walked in the room. She's wearing her hair down. Or they could differentiate objects. And if you threw a paper airplane at the camera, even though they were getting the input from the back, they would startle and duck. If you move the array to the front of their tummies and did the same thing after a little training and then threw the camera, threw the airplane at the camera, they would duck. And Paul and I got into a number of philosophical discussions as to whether this was seen. Not a high-level philosophical discussion, but a discussion nevertheless. Um, the resolution was low. If you go to London on a foggy Dickensian day and you can barely make out the Houses of Parliament, are you not seeing the Houses of Parliament because it's low resolution? And if you look at a still picture, are you not seeing it? Are you not seeing because it's still? Or if it's a black and white picture, does that mean you're not seeing anything? And the patients, by their subjective experience, said they felt they were seeing, and people who had seen before and lost sight for many years and then tried it felt they were seeing. And years later, these people were put in a scanner while they were using it, and it turned out that it was the visual cortex that was lighting up while they were processing these scenes. And Paul used to basically say that the senses are data ports that you see in your brain, not in your eyes. And the trick was to find a data port that would be adequate to get the information to the brain. You'll see in the films there are some thoughts about this. So let me just show you um, Paul Bakhirita's scene work 2.0 just to get started. Let's hope the sound is on. Given that Paul was a visual neuroscientist and that's where his training was, he, he was looking for a vehicle or for a way to demonstrate this idea of this neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to rehabilitate itself. And the logical extension of that in terms of 
applying it to a technology and demonstrating it in the real, in a real patient population would have been in a, the blind population developing a, a blind prosthesis, if you will, or a sensory substitution device. Okay, Bill, let's try something a little different now. Okay, it's a telephone. And the receiver is to the right. In sensory substitution, he claimed that brain is flexible, plastic, and smart enough to analyze any information that you can deliver accurately to the brain. Where you can actually take signals from a video camera. In this case, he was using a, a studio video camera and presenting this stimulus on the back of a patient who was blind. And this was the first time that Paul was able to actually demonstrate that you could take signals from an artificial source and present that onto the patient's skin and have them be able to pick up that information as though it was coming from their retina and treat that information the same way. It's vision. It doesn't matter where the signal is coming from. How a sensation entered the brain was not important to Bachingrita. What was important was what the brain did with that sensation. Okay, I'll, I'll show you 4.0. And you'll notice now the input is coming in through the, through the tongue. He used the tongue initially because it was moist, and he shifted to putting all the information on a piece of plastic the size of a stick of chewing gum that had 144 electrodes. It's very important to understand when I say electrodes, you don't think of electroconvulsive therapy and the idea that there's electricity passing all the way through the brain. It's really just enough to turn on the touch receptors on the tongue. So it transitioned into that. Yeah, I'm 54, and I've been blind for 38 years, totally blind. Let's stay inside the lines, Roger. I see black, but I have no eyes whatsoever. Over the years, that big dentist chair and massive computer behind it have all shrunk down so that it pretty well fits into a pair of glasses with a mini camera in it. The simplest way I've described it is when you're kids and you're laying in bed and one of your brother's sisters are drawing on your back with your finger and you're trying to guess what it is. It's kind of the same principle in the sense that this device is drawing it on your tongue in vibrations. Roger, that turn was incredible. Yeah, it was a sharp one. Wait a minute. So you didn't cut it at all. It's drawing images onto your tongue, and I try to get the whole image as much as I can on this little one-inch-by-one-inch sensor. It's tracing it like you do on your back when you're kids, but it's now tracing it on your tongue electronically. And see if you can try and put your hand on the top of the arrow. A little higher. I mean, definitely people think, well, it's touch. Well, not for me. I mean, as soon as I put that on, within a matter of seconds, I am seeing it. I mean, I talk about seeing because I am. It's It's drawing pictures in my head. Perfect. I mean, this was very emotional for me, and, and I told my wife the same thing. I said, maybe someday I'll be able to see your face for the first time ever in my life. The issue of seeing a face has to do with sorting out the soft resolutions uh, of the different shades on the face. Now, after that happened, one person in the lab um, developed a, a, a balance problem and he, Mitch, who we saw in the first film said, do you think we could develop a device for balance? And 
basically they invented a device where there was an accelerometer. This is in the first book, uh, which is sort of like a gyroscope or something that will tell you orientation that fed information to a computer and then back to the same uh, stick of 144 electrodes that a person would put in their mouth. And if you leaned forward, you'd feel like champagne-like bubbles of stimulation telling you you're going forward and to the side. The popping would go over to the side. They put an ad in the paper, and a woman named Cheryl um, came to try it out. She had had a routine hysterectomy, was given an antibiotic, and it was toxic to her ear, and it wiped out 97.5 of her balance apparatus on medical examination. And she always felt disoriented, like Jimmy Stewart at the beginning of Vertigo. Um, you know that scene where he's just falling, falling, falling. And it never went away. She was disabled for about five years. I once said to Cheryl, okay, but when you fall to the floor, at that point, do you feel grounded? And she said, no, it's like a trap door opens up and I just keep falling. These people are called wobblers. They call themselves wobblers. Many of them commit suicide. It's just such a, a terrible nightmare. The first time she tried on this device, which was designed to be like a prosthetic device that she would use for the rest of her life, she wore it for a minute. And at the end of the minute, one of the scientists turned off the machine, and she was standing normally for four seconds. And the other a uh, gentleman in the lab said, it's a minute, you should be turning off the machine now. This is a scientific experiment. He said, I did turn off the machine. Then they tried it for two minutes. Again, they turned off the machine. And this time, it wasn't four seconds or eight seconds, it was much more than eight seconds. And there, she built up this unexpected residual. I was there the third time that they tried the device. They tried it for 20 minutes. At the end of 20 minutes, I looked up at Cheryl. She's beaming. And she goes over, and she hugs Paul Bakirita. She comes over, and she hugs me. And I'm a stranger, writing very quickly. And then I look up, and she's dancing with Paul Bakirita. She had to wear that device for two years, and she noticed that the residual extended over time to the point that at the end of two years she did not need it and she was basically cured. Um, shortly before The Brain That Changes Itself was published, I got a very disturbing email from Paul himself. He wrote to me um, that he had came to the lab coughing. It turned out he had lung cancer. It had metastasized to his brain. And he got treatment for it, and the chemo was toxic to his ear. In the meantime, Cheryl, who had gotten better, decided to change her life and go into rehabilitation medicine. And her first internship was working at the Bakirita lab, where she had benefited so much. And her first patient was Paul Bakirita. And he benefited from the device. And he went back to work. Unfortunately, after some time elapsed, the cancer returned. He worked several days before he passed away with the help of that device. Now the lab was bereft. And 
Yet, many patients were coming to the lab. But before I, I tell you the, the, the part that leads into this book, I have a few minutes. Sure, no problem. I want to show you what Cheryl looked at. When we first met Cheryl, she was a wobbler, a self-described person with a, a balance problem and on disability. But she was wobbling profoundly. What I also realized is that this is her world. This is something that she lives with every day. I always had this constant noise in my head. And not a noise that like you hear a noise, but this feeling of noise. If you could hear confusion, that's what it sounds like. And my brain was really, really confused because it didn't know what to do. I, I, it, it was so consumed with just trying to stand up and stay straight. When I put that device in, it was just like, oh. It's like I stepped out of that room and I'm standing on the side of, a, of, of the, the ocean or something. It was just, oh my gosh, it's quiet. It's still, and it feels so good. It's like I came back. Now, it's interesting. She didn't just have a relief. She said it felt good. I think that's very important, and you'll see why in a minute. Um, there are two kinds of pleasures, according to Socrates. One is getting up off a bed of nails, and that relief pleasure, and then there are pleasures which are gratifying in and of themselves, not just because they release us from pain. And she looked very peaceful there, didn't she? You'll, you'll see why that's important in a second. Bachirita thought that the brain could rewire itself by unmasking alternate pathways or sprouting new ones. What Cheryl's brain is doing is receiving the signals from her tongue and sending them to the part of her brainstem that normally processes touch. It's then that her brain redirects this information to the area that deals with balance by unmasking dormant pathways. Well, the analogy that I think I inherited from Paul is that if you're the normal, normal nervous system, you have your major pathways, they're sort of like the, the freeways in your brain that handle large volumes of information and then do it very efficiently. But if there's an accident on the highway, you can either sit in traffic and not do anything, or you can get off on the secondary road. Over time, what the brain does is it takes those back roads and turns them into the superhighways and reroutes the information so that we're taking the existing pathways and making them more efficient. By having that sensation on my tongue, I had to reroute my, my, my patterns and my, my thoughts and, 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 and how my brain was functioning to focus on that input, if you will. Cheryl was able to pick up that signal within a couple of minutes and learn how to move head left, right, front, back, and pick up the signal and maintain upright posture, perfect posture. And she stood with military precision almost, and we were amazed by that. And when we realized that she's stabilizing her body, we decided to try 
remove the device from the mouse and see how long she can stay and keep the balance afterwards. And what we found was, when we took the, took the, um, the strip from my mouth, that there was a residual. It would follow a little bit. You know, the longer we did it, the longer the residual. So then when we just uh, continue exploration of this residual effect, we figure out that effect have ability to accumulate. With each training session, it's getting longer. Suddenly, there was a, a, a profound realization that these people don't have to use this device all the time. That there's something more than just sensory substitution. It's, it's a neurorehabilitation. The brain is learning how to change itself by use of this device. That was, that's the big breakthrough. The greatest thing is, is I'm not dependent on the device anymore. It truly, indeed, without a doubt, rewired my brain in some fashion. How? I honestly don't know, but it did. Hey, Cheryl. Aww, good to see you. Good to see you. The idea that the brain could change its function, that it could morph, it could adapt to new tasks, was really radical. And it took tall, some 40 years to demonstrate that that was possible. And we're just at the front edge of finally realizing Paul's vision of being able to take this idea and run with it. That, that's all for the films. Now I want to try to weave this all together by telling you what happened next. That's okay, I'm just having the lights come on. After Paul passed away, people with a variety of conditions heard that this device treats balance problems. So people with Parkinson's and MS, traumatic brain injury and stroke, all of whom, and, and other conditions, other balance problems, came. And something very peculiar happened. They came to get their balance treated. But as they used the device, Parkinson's patients noticed that their tremors improved and that they were less rigid. MS patients noticed that their balance, uh, sorry, that their voices, which can go sometimes in MS, came back. Uh, their pain went down. Their sensory uh, abnormalities were altered. Patients with traumatic brain injury noticed that they could move much better. This was very peculiar because their working hypothesis had been that what was helping them, what was helping Cheryl was she was getting information from the champagne bubbles as to where she was in space. This was not supposed to be happening. But there was this weird sense I pointed out to you that Cheryl just didn't seem to restore her balance. She felt very good. Something was happening in her brain. And many of these people also started to sleep much better. The tongue is about an inch and a half in front of the brain stem. It's got about 50, at least 15,000 pathways coming off the touch receptors and taste receptors that are running into the brain stem. The brain stem is very close to all the major parts of the brain. And it houses regulatory, homeostatic regulatory processors for temperature, um, as, uh, processors that involve even the immune system. Many of the systems of the body are housed in there. And Yuri had the heretical thought that maybe what was decisive here was not the information on the tongue display, but 
the frequency of the electrical waves that were helping. And in some ways, they were talking to the brain in its own language. Being Russian, he knew about Russian sleep machines, which were used during the, the, the period of the USSR when we had big pharma uh, for sleeping pills. Uh, Russia was very influenced by Eastern medical uh, experience. Yuri himself grew up in Siberia. He was very exposed to acupuncture, electroacupuncture, and so on growing up. So he had this thought. And so they started to study people with Parkinson's, etc., and these other illnesses without giving any information to the patient about balance. And they noticed remarkable improvements. Jerry Lake was a woman, a very, uh, is a woman, a very resilient athlete, would go on 500-mile bike rides. Uh, in February in Illinois, she was riding to work as she usually did. A car did something it shouldn't have done in an intersection. She slammed on the brakes, flipped over on her bike, smashed her head, the right side, and was left with a traumatic brain injury. Um, she made very, very modest improvement in the first year and then was very stuck and she was told by her neuropsychologist, look, it's permanent, you're not going back to work. She, like many uh, traumatic brain injury patients, had extreme fatigue at just the slightest physical or mental exertion. She couldn't multitask, she couldn't concentrate. Her sleep was totally disturbed. She was hypersensitive to all kinds of sounds. Just a fork and a knife touching each other would send her over the edge. She had double vision. She had lost stereoscopic vision, so she could no longer see in 3D. Uh, she had other cognitive deficits, including the inability to recognize and differentiate the human face, one from the other. So when her granddaughter was born, she couldn't distinguish her granddaughter from another child. She hobbled into the lab. She was given a lot of scientific assessment, something called a dynamic gait index. She was asked to walk down a hall. She was very tentative. She was asked to step over a shoebox. She could barely manage it. It was as though it was an Olympic hurdle. And um, she certainly couldn't look over her shoulder without falling over. She looked like a very frightened mouse. She put this device in after five years of disability. And you saw what happened with Cheryl. And at the end of the first session, it started at about the 13-minute mark, and the session was about 25 minutes. She was standing upright. She was smiling for the first time in years. And she was walking normally. And she turned around to tell her husband what had happened. And she said, I cannot believe I looked over my shoulder and didn't fall. The next morning she woke up. She got up and looked out the window and said, oh my God, there are trees and there's space and trees and more space and I can see in 3D. And by the end of that week, she was actually running up and down the hills outside the lab at Madison, Wisconsin. And she was able, after a period of time, to recognize her granddaughter's face. And this is, you know, a very remarkable story. This is not about cure. This is about her brain, which was a noisy brain, was resetting so that she was functional. It takes a while of using this to strengthen those pathways. So that is just one instance of one of these, one of the more higher tech instances of one of these ways where if we can talk to the brain in its own language, we can often resynchronize it. I'm very excited about the use of modified sound and music to help children with learning 
problems, autism, sensory processing disorders, even some people with brain problems and light. And I can't just go into all, I'd love to go into all of them, but I can't because this is uh, a limited lecture. But there are many other examples of speaking, it's a metaphor, I realize, of speaking to the brain in its own language, in a non-invasive way, to help conditions we've not been able to help. Will this help everybody? No. Nothing helps everybody. That's the world we live in. Um, but I think it's wrong not to talk about things that might help many people out of fear that they won't help everybody. And I think it is, will this replace medication and surgery? I've never said so. Um, but it will give us new methods to help people that haven't been able, we've not been able to help. And I very much hope that some of these neuroplastic concepts um, are, are several bricks in the bridge to um, bring traditional Eastern medicine with its emphasis on mind and energy and Western medicine with all of its strengths together so that we don't have this um, constant and unproductive estrangement of humanity's two greatest uh, medical traditions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Deutsch. Um, we have a, a bit of time for questions. Uh, a lot of people here, I would like to ask, keep your questions short, keep them relevant. I think that there is a temptation to save a buck and bring up your personal medical problems. Don't go there, don't go there, save us all. Um, so keep your questions short and to the point and relevant to the lecture. Um, who would like to go first? This just, just. How is this fantastic research and information being promulgated to doctors and psychiatrists and the medical profession around the world? Well, I'm doing my best by talking about it. Um, you know, researchers get very good at focusing in on their areas. They're, they're not necessarily involved in articulating what they do to others. So, I mean... This is a, a beginning, um, and uh, there's, you know, this is a, th what I do is I go to these labs that are often under-recognized and try to show how what they are doing actually makes scientific sense, because there's a lot of eye-rolling when people hear about this. Um, anyway, I'm doing my best, and maybe you can help. <laughs> Thank you. Um, more questions? This gentleman in the back there. Thank you. Amazing talk. Thank really, you. really incredible. Um, what sort of opportunity do you think there is for this kind of technology to be used outside of what we consider our normal physical senses? So, <clears throat> say for example, is that the opportunity, do you believe, for us to consume information in ways we've never thought possible before? I mean, can I read Twitter, for example, with my tongue? Um... Well, actually, Paul Bachirida, was, before he passed away, was actually working on something for blind people to read texts, but it might have been Marcus Aurelius and not Twitter. Um, <laughs> and it's probably possible. 
It's a resolution question. As computers get more advanced, um, it, it's, it's, it's quite possible. What, so is there any current research into this at the moment? No, it, I mean, it, it often happens that, you know, it's always hard for anyone to get research grants. You're competing against many other people. And if you're roughly in the medical field, you have to frame your research grants around an illness versus, so it would be up to entrepreneurs and other people to, you know, develop these things for um, people who are more fortunate than people who are suffering from very frightening and upsetting diseases. But I think these things will happen. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. Gentleman over there. Hi, I'm a doctor. I work in a pain clinic. I've read your, both your books, um, which I found fascinating. Thank you. Um, and I'm interested in looking at how I might apply some of the principles that you described to help our patients. Um, and you described, you know, you described the successes in the books. What, how, you know, how many failures do you have as well? What's the, what's the likelihood of success in treating a difficult pain state? Yeah, I mean, these questions are answered late in science. Science has stages. They begin with a hunch and wonder, and then you have someone who sees something that no one else sees and tries to perfect and develop a method over time. And then there's a pilot study and there are studies and then there are comparative studies. So when you're dealing with the cutting edge, by definition, uh, you don't have answers to those questions immediately. The burden of this book has been to show that this doctrine of the unchanging brain, which decrees by definition these people can't get better, is a blunt statement that is inadequate. And so what I've done is focused on cases where people have been benefited. You have to decide for yourself whether these people uh, are more like or more unlike the rest of your patients until we get uh, more studies. Now, in the pain area, the idea was just in, that I described, which was in the chapter one of the book, is, you know, only several years old. So there's not a randomized control study, although it is based on hundred. I mean, the man read 15,000 pages of neuroplasticity to develop those techniques. In the case of the stroke interventions I talk about, there are about 450 papers on constraint-induced therapy in one way or another, including control trials that show it's very effective. Uh, in the case of the light-based interventions, there are about 2,000 studies on low-intensity lasers, um, for uh, just their healing properties in animals and human beings. And there are about a dozen studies of, it, of its use in, uh, uh, in, in stroke and traumatic brain injury. Some of them, by the way, come from China, but some of them come from Harvard and, and different places. So um, I can't answer that. I'm describing so many different treatments. It depends. I will say this, you know, I wear two hats. One hat is of uh, someone who did research training and is very concerned in groups with group studies and, uh, you know, replication and so on. The other hat I wear is of a clinician. And when I'm sitting with a patient uh, who, it's funny how we say this, 
This is, this is the language doctors use. Who has failed previous treatments. When I'm sitting with a patient who has been failed by three previous treatments, um, if there is an intervention that has no known side effects, um, that I've seen work with someone uh, who seems very similar, I will never say this will work for you. I will say um, this is something I have seen. My impression is it might be worth a try. And that's how I deal with it because they're in chronic pain and, you know, uh, they're suffering every single day of their lives. And, you know, my clinical hat is every bit as important as my research hat. And the researcher wants to know quite legitimately, um, you know, how true is this with absolute truth with capital A and capital T in multiple replications. Ignoring the fact, by the way, that studies often contradict each other, unfortunately, but leaving that aside. Uh, and the clinician wants to know, is there something I can, should I tell this patient to wait 15 years, let's say they're 60 years old, um, till um, the ultimate fourth research study has come in for something that has no known side effects? What is more humane? What is more reasonable to do? And so sometimes, yes, I will, as physicians have for many, many hundreds of years, entertain doing something that may not have, you know, huge randomized clinical controls. What I've found, by the way, interestingly enough, is over the years, the people that I've written about have often had people, and I know you're not saying this, say, okay, well, where's the randomized clinical trial for this particular thing. You know, Edward Taub, who did the stroke study, has now got 450 studies behind him. <laughs> um, if that person ever had a stroke or their spouse had a stroke, guess who they went to see? <laughs> they went to see Edward Taub. Um, part of the reason there aren't more studies of some of these things is we do not live in a medical utopia where when a new treatment comes along, it is immediately rolled out to all people all at once. And so we have to wait till they're, till they're widely available, unfortunately, so, sometimes. Um, but that being said, look, there's a lot of science in the book, and there, there, there are a lot of controlled studies in the book. I mean, the, I talk about Parkinson's and exercise. And I talk about a person who improved himself by walking, and there were many doubters. But a wonderful review from the Mayo Clinic of this, all the studies of Parkinson's and animal human beings shows that exercise is very helpful in improving movement and mood in Parkinson's. Um, and other studies are coming out each day showing that. So there will always be this tension. Um, and to some people, what I'm describing are mere anecdotes. To me, because neurological systems and human beings are so very complicated and each of us is different, um, I think the individual clinical case history looked at closely and exhaustively is a very, very important part of medicine. You know, it always has been. And it should continue to be one part of what we do alongside studies. 
Um, and so, so to me, they are not mere anecdotes. They are anomalies that don't fit the existing paradigm, which is the doctrine of the unchanging brain. And I think that they are occasions to rethink the doctrine of the unchanging brain. And nobody wants, nobody more than me and, and the people I write about, want there to be more studies to clarify your very important question. Right next to the previous speaker. Thank you. Utterly fascinating. Um, as a philosopher who's interested in music and the mind, mm. I'm taking a jump from where you're going and wondering if you can retrain the pathways, could we all gain the, the um, ability for synesthesia? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, um, but someone who's interested in po poetry, um, you know, it seems to me that poets and creative writers who are, are using metaphors and are bringing together different, different things in a way in their development, if they're not formally synesthetic, like Vladimir Nabokov was and his wife was, and surprise, surprise, his, I believe his son is, uh, I think are to some degree cultivating a higher level of intellectual synesthesia. Um, but as for a ground level synesthesia, like when a person looks at the letter A and always sees a particular color, or it's a famous book about the man who tasted shapes, there's some kind of cross wiring. I, I don't know. Um, I haven't seen people lining up to try to taste shapes. Uh, but I, I think some of these things we don't know until we explore them. Um, yes, let's go to the center there. At the end of your very interesting talk, you suggested there would be bridges between your, your insights and po possibly with uh, oriental medicines. Mm -hmm. So are you thinking of things like an insight into how acupuncture may be effective, that perhaps acupuncture is involved in reprogramming parts of the brain? Yes. As part of the research for the book, I was lucky enough to be invited to the Beijing, which was called the Peking Institute of Neuroscience. And... I met with the man who was in charge of investigating acupuncture and actually to my surprise he was trying to see it completely in western terms in terms of triggering endorphins uh, even though his area was electroacupuncture um, and I went wandering through the bookshops in Beijing and what I found was a book called Scalp Acupuncture and as I looked through the pages it was all about using certain meridian points on the scalp to treat stroke and neurological diseases. I had not heard of that. And in the book, I have a, it turns out that you can use light, laser light, low-intensity lasers, which are healing lights, unlike the hot lasers that um, I think his name was Oral Goldfinger is using in the movie after, named after him to try to split James Bond in two and destroy flesh. Um, you can use lasers, and many people have, right on acupuncture points. 
you can use various kinds of any energy interventions. You can press on them. You can use needles. You can use electroacupuncture. You can use lights. And in the book, there is a discussion of the use of laser acupuncture uh, on certain meridian points on the on the skull to treat um, stroke victims and, and, and brain injury. And uh, we're, we're, I don't know, we're, we're seeing that it's working because these people are put in brain scans before, you know, before and after and improving. So I, I think what it does is it hasn't worked out all of the specifics. I mean, it tells us that certain frequencies of light are helpful and certain are not. Certain frequencies of electricity are helpful and certain are not. But the acupuncture points seem to be you know, very legitimate points of entry into influencing organ systems. Uh, the, the details are not worked out, but... For me, um, Eastern medicine, the more I look at it, becomes more and more credi- credible when we look at it. Part of the problem is with, West, with sort of Western eye-rolling technique, when you hear about Eastern medicine, it's like a reflex. Is it innate or acquired? Um, is when you roll your eyes away from the subject, you're not looking at the subject. Um, and so... The good thing is to try to immerse oneself and to understand what one doesn't understand rather than dismiss. I, I hope this book um, is, again, just a contribution towards, because many other people are working on this, helping us to at least begin to look more carefully at these things. The woman in the front. Let's, let's go here first. And uh, is there any way to get mics up there? Oh, okay. I, I'm going to just hold off with the shouting. First, we're going to have a question here, and then we'll have a, sh- a shouting session. All right? Hi. Um, I'm really fascinated in neuroplasticity and cerebral sorry, and cerebral palsy. And um, I have cerebral palsy, and I'm training to be a fellow. Feldman- could you speak a little closer to the mic? Like here? Yeah. Is this better? Oh, it feels like the training. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm fascinated with neuroplasticity and cerebral palsy. I have CP and um, I'm training to be a Feldenkrais practitioner. And I wondered how much neuroplasticity research is going on around ideas of cerebral palsy, around ideas of um, more complex disabilities that affect movement. Well, there are some neuroplasticity-based techniques that have been very helpful to some people with cerebral palsy. Uh, um, and I described some of them in the book. In the first book, I described the use of the Taub technique, but um, the work of Moshe Feldenkrais, who I believe was working very neuroplastically before neuroplasticity was recognized, um, is described in the book. Uh, I describe... Um, work that he's doing, um, one of his students, Anat Baniel, has been doing to help with spasticity, rigidity, but also just general neural development. Um, yes. Wonderful. So I was 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was a study done by Taub uh, in, in children with cerebral palsy. That's been published. Um, because there was so much skepticism that movement might actually change brain structure, which is what Feldenkrais claimed, there weren't a lot of studies done of him, and I don't know if there were studies done of the work. All I can tell you is, again, I've immersed myself in it, and I've seen many children, that's children, with cerebral palsy make progress using those kinds of techniques. And, you know, I think that there's a lag here because, again, of the doctrine of the unchanging brain. It's the, the Feldenkrais work is one of the areas that wasn't sufficiently studied. Interestingly, Paul Bachirita was the same person you've seen. His wife happened to have been a Feldenkrais practitioner, and uh, he intended to do a study of Feldenkrais, but he passed away, alas. So, um, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of technique and craft that can be helpful to people. You know, um, sometimes breakthroughs are led by research and the clinicians follow. And sometimes breakthroughs are led by clinicians and the researchers may or may not follow. Um, and so the other dialogue that's really necessary is that we, we need more mutual understanding between these two groups. Let's go to the balcony. Thank you for an absolutely fascinating talk, which was eye-opening and not eye-rolling. Um, you're, you're described, I think, also as a psychoanalyst, and I'm interested where this crosses over into the field of psychotherapy, because there are quite a lot of people working in an energy way in that area, mm -hmm. and also the, the issue of um, neglect in terms of abuse and... Um, just emotional neglect, I mean, affects the brain as well. So we, we have damage coming not just from physical causes, but from uh, uh, mental uh, uh, or non-physical origins. And it seems to me some of your techniques cross over uh, quite, quite um, remarkably into certain areas of, of psychotherapy or have potential there anyway. I wonder what your view on that is. Yeah. Um, well, the first book had a couple of chapters... Actually, in some respects, you might say three chap. One respect, you might say three chapters, but certainly two on psychotherapy. Uh, in this book, I had so so much neurological material that I decided to put any material I had that had more to do with uh, psychiatry, psychotherapy, psychology, in a second book, which I a third book rather, which I hope gets written. Um, but yes, there is tremendous crossover, and you know we are finding of of course, that emotional, serious emotional abuse and problems and PTSD is altering the brain uh, in very significant ways. These particular techniques are not designed to help the brain. I know that there are people who do energy work in um, psychotherapy. Um, there's someone here in London, Phil Mullen, I think his name is, I recall, is. Um, and I've seen some pretty remarkable things um, where people who were stuck, for instance, with phobias or certain problems, um, these were accidental discoveries in a way, who improved when acupuncture points were addressed in the context of a psychotherapy. Uh, so, yes, I think there's crossover. I just couldn't put it all in a book this length. 
There was a woman somewhere in the middle here who was trying to get in. Is, is it all gone? Is she gone? Yeah? Over there. Sorry. This is related to his question. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about using this type of therapies in conditions such as bipolar, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Well, first of all, as a psychiatrist who practices in Canada, where I can still do this, uh, I would say that just under half of my patients are on medication, and every patient gets psychotherapy. Um, that's just a blessing of the Canadian medical system, at least at this time. Um, there have I talk in the appendix about the use, uh, I'm not talking about psychotherapy, but use of neuroplastic techniques of neurofeedback. There is a person whose work I hope to explore in great depth in, in the future who does neurofeedback with bipolar and mood pro problems and has had a number of successes. Um, the work on schizophrenia has been very limited, but very interesting. In the first book, I described the use of various forms of brain exercises which could help people with chemo fog, sometimes traumatic brain injury, and any kind of age-related cognitive decline. That's not Alzheimer's. That's just the sort of sluggishness of memory that we all get into as we get older if we don't really challenge our memory systems. But a few words about schizophrenia. Schizophrenia originally was called dementia praecox. Often the way things come to light uh, the, the people who discover things um, have important insights. And it's interesting that schizophrenia was originally called, seen to be one of the dementias in some way because there was not just the prominent hallucinations and delusions, but people with schizophrenia had cognitive difficulties. And we know from many, many studies now that they have working memory problems and various kinds of perceptual problems. And so... Michael Merzenich, who plays a very important role in the first book, um, knew that the brain exercises he developed, which are now called Brain HQ, and he, he was one of the people who persuaded the scientific community that the brain is plastic, really, really wanted to see if he could help people with schizophrenia. Um, and so he gave them brain exercises for their working memories. And this has now been stu studied by Professor Dr. Uh, Sofia Vinogradov, who's actually the head of psychiatry at uh, um, the University of California at San Francisco. And what they have found is that if someone is showing incipient signs of schizophrenia, if they do a lot of brain exercises, which boost the working memory, that their day-to-day -day functioning radically improves. The cognitive symptoms of schizophrenia um, are actually profoundly predictive of the outcome of the illness. We can often control the hallucinations and delusions with medications, although medications do have side effects. But that, those medications don't really touch the cognitive symptoms, which affect their work functioning and social functioning. Um, the problem has been that they felt it should be studied in the prodrome. And now I, I switch from fact to theory. Dr. Merzenich's intriguing theory is that the reason 
um, working memory, that there's a relationship between working memory going awry in schizophrenia and dopamine chemistry. So patients with Parkinson's have low dopamine. Patients with, um, and we, get, we boost their dopamine to help them move. If dopamine um, gets at the wrong level, it seems able to create hallucinations and delusions. And Merzenich's theory is, if, is that if you're working memory is not keeping up with real-time events unfolding. You make all sorts of interesting confusions. Did he say that or did I say that? Because you can't keep up. And everything is now novel because every event is a surprise. And that leads to a lot of secretion of dopamine. And over time, the brain is actually poisoning itself with dopamine. Now that's a theory. I find it really interesting. And that's the rationale for giving young people who show the first signs of schizophrenia these brain exercises to work on their working memory. And I've met with a number of them who found it helpful. Um, And the initial studies are what I would call promising. Um, But, you know, we need more studies of this. And there is a huge problem in getting young people who are showing prodrome signs of schizophrenia into a study. It's so terrifying to contemplate that I might be losing my mind if you get the soft signs of schizophrenia. That to say, well, you might be able to prevent losing your mind, but we're not sure you're losing your mind by doing these exercises. I mean, just imagine talking to a teenager like about that. Merzenich actually thought it would be easier to give the entire state of California brain exercises for free than to get a few people into a study. I know that's not an adequate answer to your question, but that's what I know. I'm mindful of the time here, and I see a lot of hands, actually, but I think we have to bring this to a close. So please join me in thanking Dr. Deutsch for a wonderful talk. Thank you.